You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 18 with Katherine Silver. Katherine is a licensed clinical social worker in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and her practice specializes in the treatment of people with eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and trauma. She also received post-grad training in family and couples therapy. So why, you might ask, are we doing the conversation about higher level of care? Well, a few years ago, Catherine and I met when she was the senior team leader at one of the nation's leading eating disorder treatment centers. She knows a bit about higher level of care, and I'm hoping that our conversation can shed light about the different higher levels of care, what they entail, and break it down in a way that doesn't seem so scary. Let's go. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. I'm excited for our conversation. So thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking about higher level of care. Like we're actually doing this. I don't know about you, but if I heard the term, I would be kind of terrified. What does that mean? What does that entail? I probably heard horror stories. So let's break it down. And maybe as a starting point to even kind of work through the differences. How do you know when you've gone from, okay, maybe I have some sort of disordered relationship with food to, okay, this is an eating disorder and I need a lot more help. It's a great question because we live in a diet culture where we're surrounded by fad diets and workout plans and all of this stuff. And it's so normalized. So a lot of people ask themselves, where's this line? And so because it's a spectrum, there's not, unfortunately, there is no specific line where you've officially crossed over into an eating disorder. But some of the hallmarks that we want to look out for is how much distress it causes someone, right? How much distress do these thoughts cause, the behaviors cause, and how intrusive are they? Is this something that's happening daily? Is it taking you out of the present moment where you're having a hard time being present with friends, family, work, school? How rigid are you being with these rules? And also how much guilt and shame is associated with it if you don't follow, right? It's really, you know, really assessing each one of those factors. And then also too, people with eating disorders, a, a big you know, thing that we'll see is that their self-worth is wrapped up in it. Right. So if you know someone who's maybe dabbling in dieting, even though that can also be a very slippery slope and can be dangerous, they they're not gonna tie their self-worth to what they ate that day or what they didn't eat that day or planning next the next day and how much they weighed that morning and, and all of that. So um so it's really sort of assessing each piece and going from there. These are really good questions to ask either yourself. Is this what's happening for myself? Or even as a professional or a clinician who's assessing for level of severity, for lack of a better term, these questions of how is it affecting your life? How do you feel about it? What's your level of guilt and shame? The level of how your, your self-esteem is attached to it. All of these things are great questions to ask. But also kind of reiterating that just because somebody might not quote hit like the eating disorder mark, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve help or that they shouldn't get help. It just depends on what sort of level is appropriate for each person. Right, exactly. And I think 
in terms of like diagnostic criteria, that's gotten more flexible, which is great because I think there's been a realization that like we can't really set these hard and fast markers of what qualifies an eating disorder that so it's it's a little bit more flexible, which is awesome because then people can access care. So going along the same lines of this is a continuum. So it starts from some sort of disordered eating and goes up until a full-blown eating disorder that might look more of like the Hollywood version of an eating disorder. That's such a small percentage of it. Levels of care are also on a continuum. So when we say higher level of care or even outpatient, I mean, they're just different terms. So first of all, can you kind of give us a sense of what are the different levels of care that are not just, oh, you see a therapist or you're hospitalized and change your bed? What are they and what's the difference between them? Just as a rough outline, the first step is the lowest intensity, I should say, is outpatient care. And so that's what I'm currently doing. I see people in my office or I mean now virtually, but seeing people in my office. In your you know, Zoom office. Week, my Zoom office, exactly. Seeing people once a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on needs. It's usually on a weekly basis. And then that's kind of what people think of when they think of therapy, right? But people also can see their dietitian on an outpatient basis. And I, I should also mention um, and just clarify, because I'm sure I'll be referencing this. A dietitian, when I say dietitian, a lot of people use that term inter- interchangeably with a nutritionist. Just to clarify the difference, a nutritionist, um, while they might have some training, is not, you know, they, they don't have their master's degree in dietetics or nutrition sciences like a registered dietitian does. The term sometimes sounds a little scary to people because it has the word diet in it, but they might see their dietitian weekly, psychiatrist, there's outpatient groups. So it's really like that more weekly support. Then there's IOP. So so anything above outpatient, like people might reference a higher level of care. So and that could look very different. The next step is IOP or intensive outpatient, and that is um, you know every program is a little different, but it's usually about three days a week. Some of them go up to five days a week, and it entails group therapy. There's supportive meals, and that's but usually in IOP there's only one meal per day. So that entails a supportive meal is like where you're eating with the other clients that are participating in the program, whether it's lunch, breakfast, or dinner, and a staff member is usually also eating the meal, and they're there to provide in the moment support. So there's group therapy, the supportive meals, and then some IOP programs also offer individual therapy as well as uh, individual nutrition sessions with the dietitian and even sometimes psychiatry. But every program is different with that. So it's worth looking into. The next step from IOP is PHP or partial hospitalization program, also known as a day program, which is very similar to IOP. It's just more intensive. Usually they're about five days a week. Some of them go up to seven days and they usually have two supportive meals, sometimes three. And like I said before, group therapy, as well as individual therapy, nutrition sessions. All of these programs go home at the end of home at the end of the day or for the weekend. Whereas the next level, which is residential, that's where you would go and stay at the treatment facility. And that's where, you know, you would get 24-7 support. Same thing, you know, it would carry over similar things from PHP, but more intensive. They also offer sometimes different things like outings or to a restaurant or different exposures once somebody gets to a certain level, but that's residential. And then above residential is inpatient. That's another thing that people often they, they say you say that interchangeably is residential and in, inpatient, but they are different. The main difference being inpatient care is when someone is medically unstable or they have some you know psychiatric symptoms that really need more 
close monitoring. And the focus there is more on stabilization. So that way they can then step down to residential and PHP, et cetera. So that's a great overview. And I I love just the differentiation of it because so many people think higher level of care and they think hospitalization, which is of course not true. So I wanted to focus on three of them that you had mentioned, the outpatient, which is kind of what you're doing, what both of us are doing, and IOP and PHP, because that's basically where you have your experience. So let's kind of focus on that. If you can break it down, let's just start with outpatient. So I know that you said that you can see your team, let's say your dietitian or a group. What does it actually look like in terms of eating disorder recovery if you can break it down maybe a little bit more, what are some of the other pieces that we can put in place for outpatient care? Just a little bit more detail, if you will. In outpatient care, there's a lot of flexibility, generally speaking, in terms of what it looks like. Like I said, it could be once a week, it could be once every other week, or it could be three or four times a week, really depending on the needs. But people tend to have the most success when they have a established eating disorder treatment team. And making sure that everyone on the team is actually an eating disorder specialist. Because many providers out there say that they treat people with eating disorders, but it's really not their specialty. And while they're well-intentioned, it can be really dangerous. So, um, So making sure everyone on the team is on the same page with that. From there, it can be, depending on each person, it can include those sessions that I said. And it could also be like, there can be outpatient meal support. Sometimes dietitians or even therapists might offer it where it's like, they'll actually sit and eat a meal with you or a snack or something. So you'll have that support. And there's outpatient groups that might meet weekly or maybe once a month. So there's kind of like an a la carte sort of feel to this that can really be tailored to each person. Yeah. And it sounds like within outpatient care, there is a range of support. And so if you see your therapist once a week is different from seeing your therapist twice a week, your dietitian once a week, your doctor once a month, your psychiatrist once every three months, and a group every week, something like that. So going into IOP and PHP, even just, and again, this is your personal experience. Obviously every program is very different. Let's just say we're going to do an IOP in the evening. I'm looking into a program. I have no idea what I'm going to expect. What does even a typical evening look like? What is expected? You know, just those details. Sure. So if someone's going to be an IOP, a lot of times it is in the evening. Sometimes places offer like a daytime and an evening time, but people who want to stay working or they're in school during the day, there's the evening program. And usually it entails, you know, you arrive sometime in the evening hours, five, six-ish, and there's usually a group then there might be the meal and then a group afterwards. And it's something along those lines. And if you're in a program that does offer the other individual sessions, you will be meeting with your provider through the program, either outside of program hours, they might coordinate that with you, or they might take you out of a group to meet with you for a part of it. And then you go back into the group. So a lot of this obviously is so hard to figure out which level of care do I need? Which level of care do I want? So even just from your chair, like your side of the of the conversation, what are some things that you look out for that kind of seem to make it really important to seek higher level of care, either if it's red flags or just some things that you look out for that make the higher level of care imperative? It's an interesting question because again, it's it can be so murky, right? Of like what's imperative. And I guess the most measurable factor is safety. 
if their safety is at risk, whether it's from a medical standpoint or an emotional standpoint, that's a huge red flag where it's very necessary. All of that said, especially when it comes to medical instability, I want to be very clear that if somebody, even if somebody is perfectly medically stable, that they could still have an extremely severe eating disorder. And I've seen that constantly. So I want to be very clear that that does not mean that you're fine or that you're making this up or I can do this outpatient. You know, sometimes it really, it's just one piece of the puzzle. So really, I think if ever there's a question, if somebody's not in treatment, like the first thing to do would be to seek an eating disorder therapist for an assessment or even go to an eating disorder treatment center for an assessment because it's so, eating disorders are so nuanced and every part of that needs to be, of the person needs to be assessed to really decide what's necessary. But some indicators of somebody, if someone's already in outpatient therapy, there might be, you know, a lack of progress. Maybe the client is, maybe they, maybe there's been some progress, but they've hit a wall and now it's like hard to kind of get past that. They might be white knuckling it. Like it's taking everything in them to not engage in these behaviors or the behaviors have gone down, but now we're also noticing like their mood is tanking, right? Like maybe their depression's now really bad or their anxiety is crippling, their trauma's coming up because their main coping skill of the eating disorder is decreased. We also can see something that we call symptom swamping, where the eating disorder goes down by now maybe substance use is going up or self-harm is going up or other sort of you know compulsive behaviors are increasing. So again, it's it's really looking at that whole picture, but those are some of the main factors that we want to consider. Yeah. So let's just say I'm the client, you're my therapist. I say, Catherine, I know that you're saying that I need a higher level of care, but I just don't want to. And I know that question is loaded because there's a question and then there's a question underneath the question and there's so much to unpack with that. But even just initially, what is your response? Of course, want to get a better understanding of why because there's so many factors that you know contribute to the reasons why people don't want to go. But I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of fears associated with the higher level of care. And I kind of tend to break those into two categories. There's like, the emotional, social, financial component. And then there's the eating disorder component that deters people, right? So the first component, you know, there's tons of shame. First of all, there's the the stigmas that come with mental health, mental health treatment, putting that first, right? Especially if that means taking leave from, you know, work or school, putting other obligations on hold. But then also too, I mean, eating disorders are built on shame. That is what they thrive in. So I would say that that's really the work. The work is to get below that shame and to really work through it. And there's this, you know thoughts of like, what will people think? What will my family think? What will my friends think? Also, like I said before, taking time off of work, there's the very real factor of like, I can't stop working. So I would have different responses to each of these things. But you know, in terms of, like I said, the social piece, another thing that eating disorders thrive in is isolation. So all of these things, like if you were to be in a higher level of care, you would really be able to work more intensely on overcoming those fears. When it comes to finances and work, I mean, it is certainly a privilege to be able to take time off and go seek treatment. But I would say, you know, if you work at a job that has an HR department, call HR, ask them, say, I might have to take a medical leave, not sure yet, but if I do, what are my options? right? Like what are the benefits that are available to you? Maybe there's something like short-term disability, maybe not. And if not, maybe there's some way you can use vacation days or sick days. And even if none of those exist, I've seen bosses just anecdotally, I've seen 
bosses be very um, understanding and flexible with their employees. So all of these things are workable. Then there's the eating disorder component of reasons why people don't want to go. First and foremost, it's I'm scared to gain weight or I'm scared to give up control, right? Like, because I know the more intensive this treatment is going to be, the less control and less wiggle room my eating disorder will have. So that's scary. There's also this common belief of like, I'm not sick enough. Everyone's going to be skinnier than me. People think eating disorders or eating disorder treatment. And they think of, like you said, like what's depicted in movies and, you know, people struggling with anorexia and, and who need to weight restore. Well, yes, that is, we certainly, there are many folks struggling with that. It's the smallest percentage of eating disorders. So just debunking some of those myths. Yeah. You know, just really like putting myself first. Like that's a lot of times people with eating disorders struggle with doing that. And that's very uncomfortable for them. And say going to HR and figuring out all the things that have to go into when you go to higher level of care is almost impossible when you have this ambivalence and the eating disorder is so loud saying, I don't want to go for all of these very valid reasons. Right. Such a good point. That's because ambivalence in recovery is such a huge piece of it. And it's really important that that is worked through, right? Like people talk about motivation and recovery all the time. And motivation ebbs and flows, right? Like there are days when we're really motivated and we're ready to do the recovery oriented thing and we feel good about it. And then there are days where we want nothing to do with recovery. And so there really is benefit to working through that ambivalence and finding this line of maybe it's not so much motivation as much as it is willingness, if that makes sense. I like that difference because the motivation is not going to be there. Certainly not. But even though you're not motivated today, are you willing? Right? Are you willing to do the next, the next recovery-oriented thing? What if, and this has happened so many times, where it's just really hard at this point to work through the ambivalence, and there is somebody who really would benefit from a higher level of care, but at this point, either they're not willing or their ambivalence is too loud and they're not acknowledging it. Could it be helpful for them to do outpatient to kind of start? Oh, absolutely. To start for sure. A lot of times, especially people who've never been in treatment before, like they don't, they have no idea what they're getting into. So sometimes it's just getting, getting, starting, like just sitting across the room from a therapist, which is so many things can grow from that, right? So, yes, absolutely can be beneficial. That said, if it does become clear after a period of time in outpatient that this person's really not responding to this level of care and like they really do need more support, then you, you're in this place as a, as a therapist of like, what's the line between supporting this client and enabling this client? You know, and that's something that's very, very, very case by case and requires a, a lot of thought and time and, and communication with the team and communication with the client too, of like where this, the crossroads that we're at. Because otherwise, if we're in more of that enabling component, then we're doing more harm than good at that point. Exactly. And might actually not be that a bad question to ask if you're not on the treatment team, but you're, let's say, a family member or a loved one trying to think about how you're supporting this person. Is this actually support or this is enabling them to continue in their eating disorder? Exactly. Something that that I, you know, just popped into my mind when you were talking about some of the aspects of IOP is the social piece that no matter what level of care or most higher levels of care is pretty much focused on the milieu and you're going to be around people. And so many people are afraid of that. 
I don't even have a specific question, but just talk about for a second what that dynamic actually looks like and how people who come in really afraid of it do and and do they leave right. any differently? No, that's such a good point. Especially they're afraid of that kind of going back into the shame, right? Like this idea of like being exposed, being vulnerable, or maybe feeling really uncomfortable with other people's vulnerability. And I have to say that again, because of the secretive nature of eating disorders, you know, with the isolation, et cetera, the milieu, having a community that really you can only find in higher levels of care or outpatient groups too, but having that close connection to a community is, I mean, we see it in so many areas like recovery groups. It is so immensely helpful. And I think that a lot of times the discomfort that people face in that stems more from issues related to their eating disorder rather than true preferences. It's usually because they're scared of vulnerability or uncomfortable with that, scared of being judged by other people. And it's worth challenging all of those things because it can be just so supportive and so fruitful to know that you're not alone. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to give some of the anxiety a little bit of credit is if there's somebody who's vastly different from what they believe the population to be, let's just say the milieu is known to be like a bunch of 18-year-old girls and this is somebody who's in their 50s and they can't really relate. So that's, you know, something to think about. Or if it seems like this program is mainly women, if somebody doesn't fit into that box or a man or something, that's also another question. And something that we're seeing a little bit more now is specific programs for binge eating disorder or people who live in larger bodies because they feel you know, they just have a very different experience. And sometimes it is important to make sure that the fit is going to be good for this person to feel comfortable. So no, the anxiety shouldn't kind of like cripple you in terms of they're not exactly the same as me, but there are some valid points to it. Absolutely. And and something also to ask if someone's looking into treatment centers is, do they offer breakout groups um, or other sort of like subtracts for people who, because oftentimes they do have, you know, a separate group maybe for people in midlife, or they do have a separate group for people in larger bodies and like that, you know, so there is like a community within a community. There is this acknowledgement of the different experience while also, you know, having, having this larger sense of like, yeah, we don't have exactly, or not exactly, but we don't have like we have some big differences in our experiences, but we also can relate to and still gain from our experience or from our connection to each other. I have another question on something you had mentioned before, the financial piece, that that's a very real issue. And obviously everyone's situation is very different, but in terms of payment, I mean, we know that it's so expensive. What are some things that we can do to help people either using their insurance or their scholarships? What, what are the resources that people have? Yeah, definitely. So if somebody is really struggling with the finances, first, you can look into NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association. They oftentimes have, or even Project Heal, I should say too, like they, their Project Heal is a not-for-profit. They offer like treatment scholarships and, and whatnot, but they also have resources of like free groups, or I think Project Heal even has like a free like mentorship program. Some of them are not going to necessarily replace therapy, but there's definitely these supportive resources. Looking, you know, if, if you have insurance, definitely you can look in network. Something that I see though a lot of times is that 
people don't know if they have out-of-network benefits or they never even considered that. It's like, you know, I've seen people who have, once they call their insurance and figure out how to use it, they have great out-of-network benefits and they're able to pay the upfront, submit it to their insurance and they get 80% back, right? And it's not always that insurance can be very dicey. So you want to really make sure that this is an option that you can do, but to look into it, it's not one to be overlooked. Yeah. And to add most higher levels of care have people that are helping you through this navigating insurance piece. And so definitely asking them for some help with it is going to be important. Absolutely. And now that everything is virtual, it's sort of, you know, some people, it might miss a certain component for some people they prefer in person, but it does make accessibility that increases that because somebody might be able to now access a program that offers, you know, maybe it's a training program for professionals and they can offer really reduced rates for someone who lives five hours away, but they're in the same state or something like that. Um, so looking into these other possibilities, other, these other avenues. I have one last question for you, and this might not be so easy to answer because we're not talking about anyone specific, but in terms of your role, your role has drastically shifted as a psychotherapist in outpatient private practice versus in an IOP or a PHP setting. And I'm curious if there is anything that you can share with us about how it's different or in what way. Yeah. So in IOP, PHP, I wore many hats, right? So I was individual therapist or family therapist. I was group therapist. I you know, was on supportive meals. I was doing insurance reviews to try to get coverage for clients. So there were a lot of... you know, I wore many hats, but I would say the main differences, you know, whereas in higher levels of care, I was working with clients for a shorter period of time. Usually like at most, it would be a few months but I was seeing them way more. It was, you know, there, I could see a client of mine four times a day, essentially, like in different capacities for a number of weeks. And that felt different. However, an outpatient, even though I'm seeing them less frequently, I'm seeing them more long-term. I can really sort of do the longer-term work of like trauma work or family dynamics, things that in higher levels of care, you're definitely going to touch on. But um, just because of the limited amount of time that one is in a higher level of care, it's it's going to look different. Yeah. Well, I definitely can ask you a million more questions, but just for the sake of time, um, before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? You can find me on my website at katherinesilverlcsw.com. Awesome. And I'm going to sh- link to the website in the show notes and some of the resources that you've mentioned so that people can go check it out. Great. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.